0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science. In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Eugene Duposarsky. Eugene completed his PhD in neural networks in the late 90s, and he's been working on the business applications of machine learning ever since. Therefore, he has a wealth of experience for the past 10 years. He's been the director and principal trainer at Prescient. They do data science, big data and machine learning courses all over Australia and New Zealand. And I have to say, his courses are excellent. I've done a few now and every time I'm extremely extremely happy that I that I go back and, and do new courses and different courses that he's, that he's offering. He's been doing that for about 10 years, doing the training courses and consulting as well. He is the Chief Data Scientist at Alpha Zeta, uh, which is a global analytics consulting company in over 25 countries. And also he's the founding partner at Advantage Data. Which is a data science, also a data science consulting company that works with at sea level executives. In this episode, uh, we well, we cover a lot of ground. It's definitely a, lot, a long, a long and very exciting chat. We talk about data literacy and what managers should learn about data science to help their jobs into the future and to help them become more effective. We discuss questions to ask your potential employer during interviews so you can find really great teams to work in and to go into places where data scientists, where you as a data scientist, matter. Uh, We cover his definition of actionable insights, we discuss a lot about the communication skills that a data scientist needs and how that's evolving in the industry and also uh, applications of operational and strategic analytics, which turns into how to add value to your organization from data. we discuss all this and much, much more. I had a lot of fun doing this interview and speaking with Eugene. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. And I'm sitting here with Dr. Eugene Dubusarski, who is an absolute legend of the industry. Uh, Eugene's philosophy of data science is that it exists only to help make better decisions and add value to the organization where the science, data scientists work in. He has a unique and insightful views of our industry that are both accurate and interesting and the best thing is that he's very candid with his views and it's one of the reasons why I I really like him and I really respect him so much. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while and it should be a really interesting conversation. So welcome Eugene, thanks for being here. Thank
1: you very much for that kind introduction Felipe.
0: Now, very, very well deserved. I've been really looking forward to um, speaking you, to you for some time. So I wanted to, to start by asking you, how did this all happening, happen? Where did it come? How did you get started in the field? Where did your interest come uh, start? And how did you, what were your early days like?
1: My early days. Um, uh, Well, first of all, uh, let's put things into perspective. The field, such as it is, hasn't really existed for that long. Mm -hmm. I've unfortunately existed for a bit longer. (laughs) Uh, And I have, I guess, been in the field um, since my undergraduate days. So I think it all started when I was having a philosophical discussion with a friend on the library lawn of the University of New South Wales, and we were arguing about the existence of a soul, and I was of a more mystical bent then, and I thought, of course, there's a soul, and if, and there are things science just cannot do. And he said, "What about these things called neural networks? You should see what they can do. All this learning stuff." I'm yeah. Like, really? Because that was the other thing. I was actually doing computer science and very interested in mathematics, so um, yeah, I just got obsessed with neural nets and. Ended up doing a combined mathematics honors uh, with an honors thesis in neural nets, and then I did a PhD in neural nets, <laughs> and then finding a job was not super easy because no one really had, at least I'm in the sort of recruitment HR space, a category called data scientist or even data miner. The yeah. term data miner was only beginning to emerge in those days, but. This was definitely the field I wanted to pursue, and also after a brief period in, as a postdoctoral researcher, I was very clear that I did not want to be an academic. So I wanted to be out there in the so-called real world, Yes. but I still wanted to be doing this stuff, which meant a whole lot of starving as well. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't always easy, but uh, hopefully that answers your question.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. So it was in the, in the late 90s that you were doing your... Uh, your PhD and, and your research?
1: Yeah, but I was programming in the in S, the predecessor language of R yes. in God Help Me, December nineteen ninety. That was my first job as an undergraduate. <laughs> so you see my career has not progressed. <laughs> for better for Quite, better or for worse, no. I'm still I'm still associated <laughs> primarily or solely with R. Hey, Eugene, you do those R courses, don't you? It's like, I, I have an R course. I'd like to think I teach machine learning and data science. Exactly, yes. But, but for some reason, the R seems to be the most tangible thing. And there you go. My career hasn't moved. No, I think it's just uh, just a
0: shortcut uh, for, for people in their mind. Um, and what, what what was it about neural networks that, that grabbed you so much?
1: Um, well, it was that uh, this... Seemingly radical idea that a computer isn't just a highly efficient idiot that will perfectly do the things you instruct it to do and nothing else, mm-hmm. that there could be a way to get a computer to generalize. Now I say that as a computer scientist and I say that with wide-eyed wonder, but of course, every statistician would say, but we've known that for 200 years. It's called regression modeling. Well, as as I've said many times since then, the most important thing I learned, and I learned it since, and most of it I've learned since my PhD is statistics. When you learn statistics, you really, you demystify and contextualize a lot of this machine learning stuff. Yes,
0: and so do you think that machine learning is to a degree uh an automation of statistics is uh is it like computational statistics how
1: i think machine learning is a brand okay uh, I still think it's uh well it is it's a field of research i I had a very recent conversation where you know the definition of AI differed between me and the interviewer because uh, I guess the, the common vernacular definition of AI is very different to the traditional field, and maybe similar things have happened to machine learning. But machine learning was an academic field that emerged in computer science yes. that I think is a subset of statistics. Effectively, I don't think there's anything in machine learning that a statistician can't sort of look at, think about, and add value to. Yeah, um, is it an automation of statistics? Um, well, there are many automations of statistics that aren't just machine learning. It's uh, and is it is machine and the other side is is machine learning inherently automated? I'm not sure that it needs to be automated to add value. There is an incredible obsession with deployment. Yes, and I find that a lot of organisations obsessed with deployment and talking about deployment um, quite a lot. Well, I think it's a valid. to be concerned about if Mm -hmm. you've got a whole lot of other things in place but a lot of these organizations don't but it's it's a nice easy way to as organizations like to do grow headcount and claim sophistication and present at conferences and so forth yes um that's right yeah so like i actually don't think that machine learning or statistics or anything else necessarily needs to be highly automated to add value Mm -hmm. i don't think it's magic is necessarily high automation Um, I think the automated aspect, the operational aspect is, well, it's accessible, Um, I guess it's productizable, but in some ways it's overemphasized relative to the um, insights aspect, which is where strategic decisions come from. You can't automate strategic decisions, not as easily. Yes. Each strategic decision is fundamentally different to every other. It's much more complex. They're rarer um, automating them is going to be a real tricky task, so everybody who's worried about AI taking over the world should ask themselves, well what sort of decisions is AI replacing and they're usually commodity things they they the, they're the decisions that are usually made by relatively junior people that where each individual decision isn't that important in total they're important yes, and they're decisions that would be made anyway you know they don't really offer a transformational insight they offer, they offer so i mean they can be strategically transformational in terms of taking you from a loss-making situation to a profit making situation correct but i think the real the real opportunity for machine learning for ai is the more se- senior stuff the other thing is a lot of machine learning is actually quite dumb yep. and a lot of computer scientists don't seem to get this There's something called the IID assumption, the independent, identical, independent, uh, distributed assumption, which a lot of statistical models uh, deliberately uh, let you go past. But most machine learning models make that assumption. And it doesn't always apply. And in a lot of interesting things in the world, it doesn't apply at all. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to do.
0: And how would you describe the the IID assumption?
1: Um, Well, it's basically the the implicit assumption that every single record comes from the same process the same statistical process of every other record that's the first i which stands for uh uh, no that's the second i sorry which stands for identically distributed and the first i which is even more interesting stands for independent which means that every record doesn't have any particular information about any other records. So one of those, one of the consequences of that is that if you randomly uh, reorder all the records in a table, um, you should get more or less the same model, mm-hmm. um, statistically the same model. Also, it means that records don't really have relationships. Uh, so your model, unless you really know how to tell your model this, your model won't know that your records are different readings in time and maybe you have two successive readings or they're... Family members and they're connected or they're friends or they called one another on the phone or uh they're geographically uh they're geographically close to one another the um the machine learning doesn't really get that unless you tell it explicitly it's it's uh, surprisingly dumb
0: yes yes that's super interesting and I do want to uh backtrack a little mm-hmm. bit because um I was I was saying to Eugene uh, before we started recording that in in doing uh, some preparation for the interview, I listened to other interviews and presentations that you've done, and your answers are so jam packed with content and they're so so rich in information that um, I really wanted to make a point of of going back and exploring some of the the open doors uh, that that you leave behind, and I think that. So the I think the first one that, that we went to there is um, around automation, and the a lot of people are are saying now at least um, that you know like data science like any other work any type of work is being is being automated, um, and there's there's more solutions that are point and click and people talk about the citizen. Data scientist, and what is your uh, what is your your view on um, on on that essentially that trend, that demand that people, and what are some of the dangers that come
1: as a result? Okay, yeah, the citizen data scientist. Well, I think there are th- things that have always sold well, mm-hmm. and there are reasons why they sell well. It doesn't mean that they're good for you. Correct. I think there is an element of junk food, or possibly a better analogy might be crack or ice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there is a there are there are things which people in business just want to hear. That's music to their ears. Mm-hmm. And for twenty years now, I've seen vendors peddle software that they claim is going to make these ultimately i guess undesirable types irrelevancy companies don't want to deal with people they don't understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) people don't want to deal with people who they fear might be smarter than them and might be in the end more necessary than them yes so if you tell people you know what that very strange very clever person who keeps always insisting on saying things that are true even though they're politically embarrassing you don't need that person you need this piece of software yeah um that's a very attractive story and I've seen salespeople tell that story very well, and they tell it to people who are just like them Mm -hmm. and very eager to hear that story. So it's a match made in heaven, and money changes Mm -hmm. hands. Much more money, I might add, than the salaries of data scientists. Um, That's been happening for a long time, and it's still happening. Now, that is not to say that data science isn't being automated. Of course, data science is being automated, but the automation of data science is, first of all, something that's been all happening for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I always bring up Random Forests, which is my favorite go-to algorithm for being something incredibly sophisticated, incredibly powerful, incredibly versatile, but incredibly easy to use because so much is automated. Yes. Now, I tell you all these wonderful things about Random Forest, and I run a, an advanced course just on using Random Forest in all the versatile ways that you can use it, you can't use other things. And... It comes as a surprise to people because it takes a data scientist to even appreciate what those things are, let alone how to do them. So, you know, I think the modern fighter plane has systems that are way more automated than than a bicycle. Yes. Um, I think it's a bit more dangerous to fly a fighter plane. (laughs) Uh, So while things are being automated, I don't think they're being automated to replace a human being what yes. they're doing is automa- they're automating to make it easier for a truly knowledgeable truly elite data scientist to truly add value and another thing to consider is a notion of leaky abstraction so okay. leaky abstraction is the idea that you know you you, abs- you, you with a very simple uh, uh mental exercise you say well all of this stuff falls into the data science bucket we've got data science software we don't need a data scientist we've mm-hmm. abstracted the data science out but it turns out that your concept of what is the data science bucket and what these tasks are and how they map to the software that, that concept is leaky that concept has a number of key exceptions so you another example of a leaky abstraction is uh classical physics classical physics was great it just had a few little problems those few little problems meant that you know relativity and quantum mechanics had completely revolutionised physics to take mm-hmm. care of the leaky abstractions, and um, yeah, I don't. I think that the leaky the leaky abstraction of the notion of automation doesn't understand what it actually is that data scientists do. Yes. Now automating yes. out of existence certain data. Inverted commerce, so-called data science jobs. Absolutely. Uh-huh. If someone's job is to sit there and be a human optimization algorithm for the hyperparameters of an XG boost, mm-hmm. and that's what they do their whole life, yeah, we've got an algorithm for that. And if that person can't move up the food chain and actually assess whether a whether a predictive model is needed in the first place, whether it should be a classification or a regression model, what its error function should be. Uh, what feature engineering may be required and yes you need you will need feature engineering beyond automated feature engineering and if they can't do things other than build predictive models yeah there's a danger they'll be automated out of existence but uh, will people with quantitative savvy be automated out of existence no they'll be more important than ever and indeed it won't just be a separate elite in a different room called data scientists I think That this automation is leading to a need for data literacy because you want to engage with this tool, you don't need a data scientist. Mm -hmm. Fine, you don't want a data scientist to build your model. Fine. Well, do you know what a what an input and output is? Do you know what an error function is? Do you know why you want accuracy? Mm. Do you know how the accuracy translates to value? That's called data literacy. Yes. So it's a huge, huge problem at the moment. Well, at the moment, it's an unknown unknown. Uh At the moment. It's a huge problem because people don't even know they need it, and get a bit offended if you tell them they do. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. And what are what are the um, the areas that need the most that illiteracy, and what are some of the impacts that we're having as a result that they don't have it?
1: Well, I'm just going to read you a quote. Mm-hmm. This is, there's a podcast that I think everyone should listen to, which yeah. isn't directly about data analytics. It is obliquely, Mm -hmm. or it's about a very unusual kind of analytics called prediction markets, and again, very obliquely because it's mostly about ways people deceive themselves and what are the real incentives of people in organizations. And it's by one of the the people that I consider a deity in my pantheon, um, the great Robin Hanson. Uh And here is something that he said. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's something a friend sent to me just just today saying, "Wow, Robin Hanson said this. This is amazing. Uh, this may be paraphrased, in which case I apologize to Robin Hanson, but I think it, uh, it, it I think it's verbatim, and it, uh, I think ha- having heard the podcast, I think it's reasonably correct. So, under the feel-good veneer of win-win cooperation, teaching kids, healing the sick, celebrating creativity." Our institutions harbour giant silent furnaces of intra-group competitive signaling where trillions of dollars of wealth, resources, and human effort are being shoveled in and burnt to ash every year, largely for the purpose of showing off. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so there are so where where can data literacy help? <laughs> Data, I call it data literacy, but it's not just data literacy, it's, it's logic literacy, it's incentives literacy, it's, it's, it's transparency, um, it can help with management, it can help with senior management, primarily. It can help, it can help with the people who decide what is going to happen, mm-hmm. because if they get it wrong, everything else is beside the point. The focus is always on the technical people or the middle managers yeah. or the stakeholders or whatever. It's usually the person who's not even in the room because they consider themselves to be too important to be a stakeholder who has created a situation where everybody in the room has the wrong incentives and the feedback loops yes. are not there. So I one thing I've I've been talking about lately is that I I broadly divide data into analytics into two not perfectly separate but only but slightly overlapping chunks. Um, And that's the provision of feedback loops and the provision of decision support. Yeah. And I find that well, you need to have the feedback loops, you need to have the measurement of the most important performance indicators of the organization, dare I call them, key performance indicators. The things that you care about, you should be measuring. And that's the first thing that should happen. And I find that it's generally a lot easier to do at a technical level than it is to achieve politically. And somehow it's always not done right. Yes. Which has led me to the belief that, I, that it's either subconsciously or actively sabotaged. But that seems to be an almost universal situation. And doing the more advanced data science that, actually leads to better decision making is kind of pointless unless you're Mm -hmm. measuring the effects of those decisions. But what you do find is that without data literacy, you will have all sorts of fancy stuff, clever people, fancy stuff, deep learning, sentiment analysis, huge cloud machines, etc. But somehow the feedback loops are missing. Somehow the right things aren't being measured or being reported or cared about by people who should... See them or or care about them. Correct. Um,
0: yeah, a lot of times people don't want to to know. They don't want to look because then it means that they have to deal with certain events. Um, how do you think we can we can foster this intellectual honesty?
1: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I think I think in our own small way we're trying to do that right now. Mm-hmm. The real question is. Is this futile? Maybe. Is this the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Are there better ways to do it? Um, And I think the long answer is I I actually don't know. Yeah. And it's been one of my life's very big frustrations. Mm -hmm. And like you, Felipe, I've been trying. Yeah. I've been trying in various ways, and I'm still trying, hence we're having this conversation. Yes. Uh, I am more and more inclined to believe that it's easier to start something new with the right incentives than to try to reverse engineer
0: yeah i was thinking about that
1: and if you're gonna reverse engineer it has to be brutal and dictatorial from the top yeah it cannot work by consensus i see too many people talking about bottom-up yes one of the most common questions i get asked in my presentations is How do I educate my management? Uh How do I explain the value of this to management? How do I get buy-in? My answer consists of several things. One, it's too late. Two, they don't care. Three, if you educate them, Mm -hmm. they may be more inclined to recognize what you're doing as a threat (laughs) and get another job. That's true. The trouble is, I then have to recognize that just about all the jobs out there were like this. Um, Something I will draw people's attention to, which I think will be useful is a presentation I did recently to Data Science Sydney Uh on questions to ask your prospective employer. So the time to get this right is in the interview. The time to find out whether you're, you're you're talking to someone who needs real decision support and real feedback and appreciates the difference between good and bad offerings on that front and wants to help you do a good job versus someone who just wants you as a very fancy pet mm-hmm. and is quite happy to spend enormous amounts of money on your salary because it's not their money, but can't get the political capital to also make sure that you get data and mm-hmm. good computers to work with, and frankly doesn't care. Yes. The place to uh, figure out which situation you're likely to be in is the interview. And there are a few simple questions to ask. So. Yeah please please listen
0: yeah no i'll put I'll put the the link to that talk uh, on the show notes because it was a, a really 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 great one um, and it definitely incentivizes data scientists to to vote with their feet and to search the the places that are doing it better than others
1: and I think that well back to your previous question that how can we help I guess something that that yes, that uh, presentation tries to foster is that good data scientists go and work in places where good data scientists are appreciated yeah. I have one reservation i, I yes. it 's not a reservation about doing this, I think it 's a good thing to do because yes. I want good data scientists to have good lives yes i want there to, I want there to be a healthy, prosperous community and industry. however, I believe that the most dysfunctional places actually mm-hmm. prefer bad data scientists. Oh,
0: I agree, I agree and Be- I think it, it doubles up between the you know like the bad place and then I heard that you had this de- definition of of a bad data scientist or a data scientist that's not doing real data science and that it comes to the business value, right? And that whether they are uh, helping Supporting whether their work is supporting decisions that is actually making a difference and whether they're measuring that feedback, getting that feedback of the difference that they make. And I think that there's there's also a, a part, uh, there's also data scientists out there that don't um, work on things that make a difference in their in their organization. So it's sort of the, the marriage of the two. Um, well, the
1: point, that's right. There'll be a bunch of people who are very happy to play corporate games, yeah. climb political ladders, and support the reputation of their boss, who's only worried about their reputation and nothing yes. else. Uh, so all I'm saying is I have I have no reservations about the value of getting good data scientists to go somewhere they're valued. I just don't think it's going to change the other organizations. I don't think they'll notice or care. They won't in the short term, but they, there's going
0: to be a, a shift because in... What I think is that looking at sort of big organizations and, and the problem that you were talking about, reverse engineering and changing, uh, you know, a tsunami, essentially. Uh, and and uh, to a lot of that, you know, startups were trying to almost rebel against that and to say, we're going to have proper systems from the start. We're going to value intellectual honesty and we're going to have right incentives and we're not going to try to avoid uh, the corporate politics and I think that um, a lot of improvements in technology have allowed that to uh, to be able to be done Uh, but there's there's a lot of uh, improvements being done beyond the technology well
1: I I agree and as I said creating things from scratch the startups I Another theme of mine is that, yeah. in Australia at least, we have a very affluent economic environment. Mm. We, have, we have protected sectors. We have oligopolies. Um, it, would take, it would take an economic shake-up. But I've, I've, always, I've always seen the situation as analogous to the dinosaurs and the comet. It's only when the comet comes that the, uh, the tiny little mammals will come into their own. And the tiny little mammals here, I think, are startups ups that will very efficiently and with the right incentives and with good transparency, good feedback, good decision support actually use technology and use use data use information um, use use people to actually achieve obje- have objectives and try to achieve objectives Yes I think more broadly there is a move towards uh, I guess everyone becoming a freelancer. Mm-hmm. I've been one for ten years. You're one too now. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think I saw an incredible statistic. So one of the one of my main involvements is uh, is as chief data scientist of Alpha Zeta. Yes. And uh, the MD of Alpha Zeta showed me um, some numbers that just knocked me out. That something like over forty percent of millennials in the United States. Are uh, casually employed, really? Are Freelancers, yeah. Wow, I know, I know. So the, the, I think I think the, the freelancing trend, the my, you know the micropreneur trend, whether you're whether you're driving an Uber or you're starting the next Google, yeah. you're not you're not a salary man. That's right. Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting trend.
0: And and how what do you think about that that transition? Having made the the move yourself ten years ago.
1: Well, for me, it was the only thing to do mm-hmm. um, because I'm a, I'm a rather atypical sort of person. I'm, That's I'm why I like to too 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 dysfunctional to survive in large organizations. I just don't fit into them at all. No, I think, I think it was part of you being
0: honest with yourself in how you would be able to live a life that you really enjoyed and add value in a large amount of places. So using your expertise.
1: Well, look, I wanted to own whatever I thought up. Yeah. I mean, intellectual creativity is very important to me. I didn't want to do things that I considered to be rubbish. I didn't work, want to work with people that I considered to be rubbish. Yes. And I wanted to do many, many different things beyond the scope of wherever it was that I happened to be. Yes. Uh, the only solution to that is to be your own person. The, the benefits are massive. The risks are there's no salary. That's right. You have to, you have to hunt for every dollar. That's right. But I think the social infrastructure to support that these days is amazing. And I think if you're, you show just a bit of initiative, a bit of perseverance, and you do weather a few hard times, you, mm-hmm. you can you can go places. And it's not for everyone. Everybody's different. I agree. Um, I think I think that's that's another thing. In more more generally, I think it's very important to pick your role models. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't pick the person, don't pick the person you want to be when you're. Ten, pick, pick the person you think was most like you at the start, right? And in t- in terms of their weaknesses as well as their strengths, you know, model. You know, it's like, uh, I'm just trying to think. All the you know little little kid who isn't you know comes from a family of people who are five foot tall. Having a basketball player is probably not the best role model. Correct. Um, you know, pick. Pick someone with your, with your weaknesses as well as your strengths, with your, own, you know, with your own personality profile and see where that can take you. Possibly find an actual real-life mentor, not just a, you know, a pin-up poster of a basketball star. That's right. Um,
0: that's, that's really interesting because I think when most people go to look for, for role models, they, they go to essentially what other people think that are suc- what is success. as as verified by others instead of themselves and I think the very few look for role models that have the the same or similar strengths and weaknesses as as themselves to see how they've been able to use that throughout their careers um, to create a lot of value.
1: Well, there's, a, there's another sort of interesting social trend, which is to be inspired by yes. the stories of people who've had some sort of disability or some sort of hardship and they overcome it. Yeah. And So there's an, there's an acceptance, at least, that there are weaknesses as well as strengths. That's great. Yeah. But even then, they're not focusing on what it is about me that makes me, you know, me. not tragic, but you know, slightly dysfunctional in certain ways and mm-hmm. slightly gifted in others. What's what's my mix? What's my what's my niche? Yeah. What what do I need to avoid because I just suck at it? Yes. You know, if I... There's, there are some... There, there are everyday things that everybody doesn't even think about, but I just suck at them. And if I'm stuck having to do them, I'm dead. On the other hand, what are the things I'm really, really, really good at? And I might not even enjoy at the moment or mm-hmm. might not even appreciate, but everyone tells me, you do this stuff really well. It's worth taking... You know, taking account of those. Definitely. And in the data science context, doubly so, because to be a good data scientist, I think it's a rather idiosyncratic set of personality traits and abilities. Like, you know, ADHD is definitely a problem if you're going to be an engineer. Yes. But I think it's, to a certain degree, a necessity for a good data scientist. Okay, how so? Well, if you're just focused on process, mm-hmm. you've got no peripheral vision. If you're not distracted by things, that means you're not, you're not interested in random stuff. You're not interested in things that might turn out to be very important, very useful. As a data scientist, you're more of a hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. You know, the human beings started doing this weird thing of, you know, following a process, unpleasant as it may be, mm-hmm. with, with the farming revolution. Apparently, hunter-gatherer societies usually don't have a word for work because the idea—the idea of you know what you do to survive—is well, everything's fun. Hunter-gatherer, hunter-gatherer lives are dangerous in many ways, unpleasant and violent, and so forth. But they have a lot of fun. Yes, they don't—they don't have this notion of this thing I do, which I find absolutely miserable, but I have to do every day. That's a farming revolution thing. And the beauty of data science is you get to be a hunter-gatherer. You get to explore, you get to look for things, you, you just go out there, you go into the data, you have, well, you, you don't want to come back empty handed, but you don't know what you're going to find.
0: Correct. Yes. So then being able to look at multiple alternatives is is a positive instead of following blindly a step by step recipe
1: being being distractible. Um, I, I, I haven't found it to be a, a minus. Yeah, an overall minus. It's, it's certainly a minus in many different ways. And yes, when I have to sit down and put, put a course together, as I have to today, what am I doing here? I'm doing an interview with you, See, I'm distracted. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> no, that makes sense, that makes sense,
0: that's really good. And um, you, mentioned, you mentioned mentors. Um, what do you think is the, the role of mentors in, in data science and the, the importance of them?
1: Uh, okay, so it, it's amazing what you can find for free on the internet. Mm-hmm. Now, just, just to give you some perspective, when I was doing S programming at the Australian Graduate School of Management in 1990, I didn't know S, so I found, I found a job on the School of Computer Science Notice Board. I turned up, they said, you've got the job, go and learn this language and go and deploy, what was it, a clustering algorithm? I, I learned it. Of. And I had to learn S, and the way I had to learn S was, luckily, there was a book in the AGSM library, and this book was literally physically falling apart, Right. and this was my only way to learn this programming language. Now I look at what you can do these days, you've got videos, you've got courses, you've also got communities and meetup groups and everything else. Learning technical stuff, learning languages, learning stats, learning machine learning, learning data visualization you can learn whatever the heck you want. And you can do all that as a 12-year-old. You don't have to wait until you've graduated. Correct. If you have the right motivation, if you're self-motivated, you can learn everything from the privacy of your own bedroom and your fluffy bunny slippers. <laughs> uh, you, can, you, you can acquire all of that. What you can't acquire as easily is how that stuff meets the real world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What you can't acquire as easily is how do I get and keep a job I like? How do I progress? How do I you know the usual questions how do I win win support? How do I um, communicate? Um, and how we and then there is this stuff kind of closer to the technical, which is how does the technical work out in the real world? What sort of compromises do I have to make because well, the technology is limited or people's understanding is limited or I just have to do things quickly. Yes. Uh, what a, how do I ascertain people's real needs versus the needs that they're claiming to have? Um, you know, at some point, if you want, we can talk about the, how visualization, everybody thinks visualization is one thing, but it's actually two disciplines and three black arts. Right. And the black arts are all yes. about uh, visualization, that's what I call it, visualization for something other than communicating information. Right. Which, unfortunately, is a huge chunk, if not the majority, of the reasons that visualization is done. What absolutely astounds me is how, for so many people in our industry, they don't actually see any distinction between adding value and conveying information Mm -hmm. and just following a process to make someone look good. Correct. They actually don't understand that there's a difference.
0: Yes. Or, or sometimes even, um, a, a perpetual exploration of new technologies or ideas that don't have uh, a real business need or business drive, and that internally they're trying to find people in the organization that are excited about what they're thinking of uh, of the what the data science team is thinking about doing.
1: Well, uh, there is, okay. There are two pathologies of data science teams, uh-huh. yep. and they both stem from, the, uh, the ultimate problem is you've got, you've got a manager whose incentives are other than the best interests of the organization and yeah. providing feedback and providing good decision support. Mm-hmm. But these pathologies are, on the one hand, it's, it's to do, well, in both cases, it's to do with play. See, what I call that hunter-gatherer thing, I also call play. Okay. That's something engineers don't do a lot of, mm-hmm. corporate, corporate engineers. Yes. Startup engineers, different story. But
2: True.
1: play is when you don't know what you're gonna do and you just play with the data. You're just playing with an idea, you're exploring. You don't have milestones yet. You're just trying to figure it out. If there's not enough play, you've got something that looks like a sausage factory. Correct. So we, know we have milestones, we're gonna deliver this many models in this many day. Look at us, we're great, tick, tick, tick. Our KPIs is the number of models we delivered. Never mind that those models get thrown in the rubbish. Which reminds me a little bit of the way production used to work in uh, my birthplace, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Things were produced and thrown away. Um, On the other hand, you have the pathology of too much play. Also, where the manager just doesn't understand, doesn't care. And here the manager says, Oh, these data scientists, they're unicorns. They're technical. I'm not supposed to understand what they do. So you've got a manager who literally says... It's not my job to understand what these people do and to guide them. In other words, they're taking the medieval view of I'm a lord, I'm an aristocrat. It is my God-given right to lord it over these people. I am their boss, I have power over them, but in no respect do I have any meaningful input into what they do. Correct. If they magically produce something good, I'm going to take credit for it. So, 100% political savvy, 0% add value. And what do the data scientists do? They're big kids. They just go and play with stuff. They just, oh, we well, let's try XGBoost. Now let's try deep learning. Now let's try some obscure method like, um, you know, rotational forests or something yeah. that no one else has heard of because, <laughs> hey, that's just what we do. But for what purpose, to what end? Not clear. Correct. That, that, that's the other pathology. But, but I think, if I, if I understood you correctly, you weren't talking about data scientists that are being big kids and just playing. I think you're talking about something else again that I see in large organizations, which is this professional cheerleaders, people whose job it is to be excited about things. Uh-huh. And they don't see it as their job to actually understand those things, but they see themselves and they're given the role of being fairly senior. Mm-hmm. You're an important person because your job is to be a champion. Yes. And you know these, these, these are the people who can say blockchain, data science... Green technology in one sentence without drawing a breath. Yes. <laughs> organize any number of events around this. And they feel no shame. They, mm-hmm. feel, they feel no shame about a, a very sort of shallow buzzword-ridden connection with this. But they have enormous power. Yes. They have enormous power about what does and doesn't get down, done. And they influence what gets done. And it's in the name of conforming to fashion. Buzzword compliance. That's right. That's right. And, you, and you put this in the, in the list of
0: workplaces to avoid. Um, how, how do you think people can identify that they're possibly walking into a
1: place that has a, a cheerleader? Well, huh. I, look, all places have cheerleaders. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> all big find me a large organisation that doesn't have cheerleaders the question is does it have anything else uh-huh. and the question is which part of the organisation are you going to be working for Yes. Um, look my first question is the person you're reporting to mm-hmm. are they a decision maker now yeah. every single boss says they're a decision of maker course. because they interpret the question of are you an important powerful person That's well right. of course I am what I mean is are you someone who makes decisions for the organisation not about what analytics is done, but on the basis of analytics. Yes. What is your role in the analytics value chain? Mm -hmm. Because just about every single employer that any mentor, mentee, is that the word mentor mentee of mine has come across is not what I'd call a decision maker. Mm -hmm. They're not someone who then goes and makes an important business decision on the basis of the analytics? Correct. They are, at best, someone who freight forwards that decision yes. one or two steps to such a decision maker. But even that's rare. Usually, that person that it's freight forward to doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and this person isn't a freight forwarder. They're an internal consultant. They're a yeah. salesperson. Yeah. Their job is to go woohoo! Look at me! I'm doing data science. Is anybody in the organisation interested? No. Please be interested. We're looking for meaning here. Uh, it's true. Usually, you're being employed by an internal consultant, and sometimes even that isn't so bad. Sometimes that can be an internal consultant. I can think of one, yeah. you, <laughs> who did a very good job of it. But, uh, Thank you. But uh, for the most part, for the most part, and I see this also with a lot of BI functions, there's this ongoing struggle for relevance. Yes. And my, let's look, the, 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 my, my message to new data scientists in looking for their job, go somewhere where you matter. Mm. Go somewhere where you're valued and you matter. And when you do a good job, you, you grow in the organization because yes. of the good job you've done. Correct. Everything else is commentary. Yes. Now, having someone who is actually going to be the beneficiary of the data science you do, like the decision-making beneficiary, is a way of mattering.
0: That's right. That's right. The um, the thing the thing that we did at um, my last place is we we tried to we worked around your idea of the incentives. What are the incentives for the people that are actually making the decisions? And essentially, what can we do to get in their radar and matter to them? And When when I first started there, I tried, I think it was like, I had like 30 projects running at once. And then the only thing that mattered was what the customers thought. Hmm. We were trying to find internal customers and we had to essentially throw that away and go to the external customers, and their voices were the most important um, within the organization. And then by giving them something that the external customer wants, then that started to give us um, more importance internally within the organization uh, but when when we were talking about incentives just before and something that I wanted to go go back to, how far can that line be followed?
1: Well, I want that line to always be as short as possible the most Gratifying data science that I'm doing at the moment, which unfortunately has stalled a bit due to demands from consulting and training, yes. is the sports betting I'm doing with, uh, with the rest of the Advantage data team. Mm-hmm. Because there, that line has length zero, because we are the decision-making beneficiaries. Yes, um, I'm, I forget what the movie was called. I think it was called Far and Away. It was a Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman film, mm-hmm. where they both played Irish people in the eight, in the nineteen hundreds who emigrate to America. And Tom Cruise is a, is, a, is a poor Catholic Irish farmer's son, and he's sitting there outside of their little hut, and his father says to him. And you know, son, when you're working your own land, it's as if the good Lord is smiling on you from heaven. Because, you know, they, they spend their whole lives working someone else's Correct. land and it sucks. Um, that's how I feel in the context of how far does that chain have to go. When you're working your own data to make your own decisions, that's the best thing of all. When you are the decision maker, when the data scientist is the decision maker, that closes the loop. Yes. Then there is no incentive problem. There is no print, what's called principal agent problem. Yes. There is no communica- There is That's the best way to be. The second best thing is that your client, your direct client, is the decision maker. I find the most important distinction that I always ask people, and when I'm as a consultant, people say, oh, we want to commercialize our data. Mm -hmm. The first thing I ask them is, okay, do you want to use your data to make better decisions? Or do you want to sell the data Mm -hmm. or some analysis of the data, models, whatever, to someone else? Because that has enormous, enormous bearing on everything else. Like, I wouldn't have, if you want to do both, that's fine, but I wouldn't even have the people in the same building. They're completely different people doing completely different things. One is a product. Mm-hmm. The other one is, is, uh, is intelligence and strategic guidance for your organization. Now, yes. there, is, there is some connection between the two when you look at, you look at Amazon, you look at Google, and how stuff that they've done for themselves, they do package up and sell on. That's fine, yes, you can do that. But there is still a fundamental divide between being a, a product provider and being, and being a decision support. What's interesting to me yeah. is how that's a strange and new idea to so many people. Yeah. Because to me it's a fundamental idea because of that divide. Yes. And the implications are simple. If you're doing direct decision support, mm-hmm. then the better the analytics you do, the better. You know, the better your the more accurate your predictive model, the more money you're going to make. Yes. You know, the the better your insights, however, however tricky they are to understand, the more the more competitive value you get. If it's a product, you can do the best analytics in the world and your client may still be too ignorant or too distracted or whatever to appreciate that. Yes. You could also do something very pretty and uh, very uh, buzzword compliant and they're going to go, wow, this is great. And you go, I didn't even do anything. (laughs) Um, Yes, definitely seen that. Yeah, so whether you have a a chain of length one or a chain of length two matters a lot. When you have a chain of length three or a chain of length four, it starts going nuts. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, when your chain is of length three or a chain of length four, there's usually someone, usually one or two handshakes away from you who frankly shouldn't be in there at all, correct, and actively destroys information
0: yeah exactly what i've what I've seen yes, I agree, I agree completely um, yeah, and the uh, sorry so i I look for chain of limb zero yes, that's my favorite exactly um, and how ah uh, obviously there's there's so many there's so many things there in in um uh, the last place of where I was working, we were Offering, um, we started doing some analysis for our customers based on the data that we had, and we we realized that we could do the essentially the same analysis for many many customers. That many people wanted to see the same type of analysis done on on their own customers. So we we moved to essentially productizing that first as a web platform, and then we were exploring the idea of selling the the data through. APIs, but I think that the the majority of the value was in in giving people the the analysis and the insights so they could that they could digest. Um, but a lot of people wanted to uh, were asking about actionable insights and taking getting something.
1: What what is your view on on that? Oh dear, this, this reminds me of a question that Kidu asked me on his podcast: uh-huh. actionable insights. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be so. Uh, <laughs> um, I, think, I think if I'm to be kind, most people are not trained to think. Mm-hmm. Most people are not, didn't get to where they were by synthesizing large chunks of complex information. So when you give them a whole bunch of new chunks of complex information, they go, what the hell is this? On the other hand, I think what distinguishes a good decision-maker from a crap decision-maker is precisely their ability to grab these chunks of information and use them. Having said that, um, I guess from the the perspective of the people who are saddled with information they don't know what to do with is it's information they don't know what to do with, and they call it not actionable. Correct. And that's me being kind. Yes. That's me being kind. Because if I were to be unkind, I'd say that in some cases they go, well, isn't your job to come up with decisions for me? Mm Mm-hmm. So yes. if if not actionable means I can't think about this, can you make it a little bit simpler? I can be semi-forgiving. I'd say, well, your heart's in the right place. You just happen to be a mediocre decision maker. Mm-hmm. But if they say, give me the decision I'm meant to make, that's your job, and I'll go and take credit for it, that's where I have some serious issues. Exactly. And that's where um, automation does come in. <laughs> because if we're going to talk about automation... Um, I think the irony is that I don't think it's the data scientist who's in danger of being replaced. The person most in danger of being replaced is the kind of person that thinks that a data scientist can be replaced. That's right,
0: yes. And I think that for, for so many people in that position, they have almost an expectation that the, the data scientist and or the machine learning model is gonna tell them exactly what to do and that they can just do that and that there's no additional uh, input from their part. Well,
1: something that I haven't talked enough about uh-huh. is what value do those people think they bring? It's like, or, or to put it another way, why do they think they deserve to have a job?
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. it sounds like they see it as completely fitting and proper that the menial task of making decisions go to a machine. So what's left? Exactly. What do they do? What do they do that's so important that commands the big bucks? Um... Uh, It's interesting that if you look at what was taught to an ancient Greek aristocrat,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they learned what? They they certainly learned hand-to-hand combat. They learned how to give orders to slaves, and you know, they would have had a lot of slaves in their household. And they learned rhetoric. And what was rhetoric? Speaking nicely. You, influence so they basically oh they also they also learned they also learned the the sort of the backhanded, the, the bribing and deal making and so forth that was part of the, the 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 you know the the aristocratic behavior set in other words they learned how to influence people and they learned how to influence people through coercion through rhetoric which basically means fooling people mm-hmm. and uh, and you know through, through incentives for bribery so they'll say, we, well, I know how to influence people. That's what they'll say. Which is a very, very interesting point. Um, uh, influence people to do what? I thought we've just automated the people away. <laughs> you know, influence who? And I wonder whether all those influence skills work on smart people, particularly the rhetoric stuff. Mm-hmm. So another topic that I really want to talk about is this whole yes. idea of communication skills. yes um influence is an important communication skill unfortunately a lot of people think that uh presentations communication skills equals presentation skills no it's uh well first of all it's a two-way street it's understanding as well as giving out and it's influence as much as it is this at communication Mm -hmm. um but i'm sort of segueing to communication skills now but i'm uh, I, i actually think I actually think that communicating and influencing intelligent people, truth-oriented people, is a very, very different proposition to influencing people who aren't like that. Yes. So I I think that in a different culture and a much more sort of high IQ numerate data literate culture, Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the supposedly influential people we have today might find their influence rather curtailed Mm -hmm. and a whole lot of other influences arrive and the nature of their influence being much more objectively scrutinized, actually. But on the topic of communication, which is related, isn't, and I constantly hear that you know, it, we need data scientists who are better communicators. You know, that's on the job description. Yes. And the implication is the data scientists are crap communicators. Uh-huh. Um, my answer is that's like saying we're going to bring in labor from another country And we're going to complain that they don't speak our language (laughs) while taking no steps to teach them our language. Yes. Because in their own culture, those data scientists are pretty damn good communicators. And I'm guessing at Google, a data scientist would communicate and survive a whole lot better than one of these managers that we're talking about. Um, I also think that... When you talk about data scientists having a communication problem, they know that. They feel bad about it, and they're trying to do something about it. I don't see the other side seeing it as, to any way, their job Mm -hmm. to try to bridge that divide. And finally, in terms of bridging the divide, the data scientist has the job of taking something that is inherently complex And trying to make it as simple as possible, trying to make it as attractive as possible, possibly more simple and more attractive than it could ever be. Bad news is not attractive. Correct. Complexity is not simple. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. On the other hand, the other side may just be, frankly, cognitively unequipped to handle the truth. Mm -hmm. And we can debate as to whether they can become cognitively equipped, but I'm not seeing them making the effort to become cognitively equipped. Yes. That's the problem. So I... I get very angry, very defensive when I hear about the communication um, shortcomings of data scientists. Not always, because it's true. They could get their communication better. They could understand business realities better. They could understand uh, the, the the actual incentives, the actual psychology, the actual language of the people around them. Well, most of them at least try to do that.
0: Exactly, exactly, and are aware.
1: And you have gone through the process of taking a whole bunch of young data scientists and taking them on their journey, yes, opening their eyes, teaching them the language, teaching them about incentives, you know, you know what it's like.
0: Yeah, putting them in front of customers and getting mm. them to work on their consulting skills and uh, not only a presentation but understanding the business, understanding finance, subject matter expertise, it's all yeah, very important but you're absolutely right, the other side isn't, isn't coming to the party as, as much as the data scientists do. Too. This is so great. This is so great. Um, no, I'm having fun. Oh, same. This is excellent. I'm making so many notes.
1: We're, so, just, we're just recording one of our usual chats.
0: Exactly. I'm loving it.
1: <laughs> and um, I'm
0: thinking connected thing to, to the communication skills. What do you think about when, when data scientists are um, managed by, by people that have very basic type of requests so the reason why I ask is I've seen I've seen teams of you know people with PhDs in, in statistics being told build me weekly reports in R and make sure move the the labels around so I can read what each bubble says what do you think about about that
1: well first of all if they're asking for those reports because they're actually going to be looking at those reports. I think that's awesome mm-hmm. so we've just ticked the feedback button, yeah feed the feedback box mm-hmm. um, if they want those reports because those are those are reports that are meant to be provided to a third party for compliance purposes or whatever, then it's kind of crap yes that's so the first point is why are those okay the second point is. do you know what what is the reason that this situation has come about um and it could just be ignorance mm-hmm. and it could just require if it's just ignorance then i guess it requires slightly better communication on the data scientist's part and again this is the sort of thing that should be clarified in the interview you know what kind of work will i be doing <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's a good question to ask. Yes, you know, And the answer will be, well, we need someone who's resourceful and universal and willing to do all sorts of stuff. That's right. Well, you should push back and say, look, I don't mind doing a little bit of you know, uh, junior R coding for reporting occasionally, but if that's going to be my main job, wouldn't it be cheaper and easier to get someone who actually enjoys doing that mm-hmm. and is, is cheaper for that? So, I mean, that's the, the, time, to, the time to fix that All that stuff is in the interview, first point. Second point, a lot of people end up in that situation because they did all that in the interview, but then a brilliant boss like you left the job. I really worry about your team. Thank you. Uh, Seriously, Um, usually what you've just described is a kind of situation a lot of people end up in where they had a decent data science job, but then restructure happened. Yes. Well, then you need to think about what your next job is. I mean, my usual answer is two steps. One is communicate your concerns. if you're afraid of communicating your concerns, have an option B handy. It's mm-hmm. not like there aren't data science jobs out there, you know. Do some interviews. Have have an option B, then go and say what you want, and then perhaps walk. Yes. Or or if you're afraid of walking, or you don't want to walk, or whatever, you know, maybe you have a reason to still be there. Fine. It's more complex, but yeah. if all you're doing is is uh, you know micromanaged. Uh, uh, reporting with, uh, with, with formatting crap, well, that's not a job I'd want to do, yeah, I'd walk.
0: Definitely, 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 yes. And yeah, I've, I've had so many cases where I've, I've in, in those cases I've brought up almost like an, an, an analytics maturity curve to say, you're asking for dashboards, you just want information to be presented to you, what are you going to do with this information, what decisions are you going to make as a result? And if you can't tell me that, then let's work on that first, and then try to move people up the up the value chain instead of just giving them information well, for information's sake.
1: I think it's worth having people on your team who are possibly even aspiring data scientists, but are junior. You know, enjoy doing that sort of thing. Um, yes. Right. It's it. People do ask for this, and have you know, reporting is a legitimate thing to do. But Definitely. but you certainly don't want to waste a PhD level data scientist time with this stuff.
0: I know, yeah, it's terrible. And uh, what do you think about the um, data science teams, about their composition, their position in the in the organization, how and how to structure one?
1: Well, I'm beginning to wonder whether. Uh, W- whether the category is going to start sort of fragmenting and being redefined. So okay. I actually think that, well, the, my, my analogy is IT. Yes. We, we still have IT. Mm-hmm. You know, 30 years after, you know, computers started appearing in offices and be we still have IT. But we also have way more computer literacy among the regular population. A lot of things that IT used to do, just, you know, there's an app for that. Yes. Oh, by the way, this is also my answer to automation. Mm-hmm. So... Whatever, whatever happened uh, with IT, I think, is going to happen with data science, where true expertise is going to be more important than ever, but that true expertise is going to work at a much higher level of abstraction, uh-huh. you know, because uh, the sort of things that IT automates requires IT people to, <laughs> to drive, yes. even though a whole lot of other things become, become ubiquitously available. Um, so in terms of the compositions of teams, I actually think that having data-savvy people just making decisions is just going to be how the white-collar world is going to work. Mm-hmm. If, you, if if you're not doing something that a computer can't do, you won't have a job. Yes. And in the white-collar world, let's see, you're not you're not doing the sort of things like being a I don't know a, a physiotherapist or or being a, a dance instructor. Heck. Maybe even robots will replace those. I don't know. But mm. you know, there are, in the white-collar world, you're basically being a machine. Yes. You're being a machine. And you need to be a machine that, that a, a real machine can't be more cheaply. Correct. Which means basically telling machines what to do and thinking in ways that machines can't think. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the geek jobs, the IT jobs, and the data science jobs are always going to be there, and the other jobs are going to go away. All the other jobs are going to look more and more like geek jobs and IT jobs. So telling telling machines what to do and making sense of what machines are saying, to the to the extent that machines can't, are going to be the only jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, does that make you a data scientist? It only makes you a data scientist if, in order to do these things, just like you know, using an iPhone doesn't make you a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. But uh, thirty years ago, everyone would say you're you're programming a computer every time you use your iPhone. That's right. Um, Similarly, uh, I think uh, making, making, data-driven, uh, uh, making data-driven decisions and looking at insights doesn't make you a data scientist, it just makes you data literate. Mm-hmm. Um, so specialists are going to be the people who are still coding, and data scientists are going to be the people who do non-trivial statistical stuff to extract non-trivial insights that cannot be extracted automatically. The other thing is, I think you're still going to need data scientists to explain the non-trivial insights. Yeah. I think the 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 very fact that the insights themselves are complex, the fact that there is you know uncertainty that's multivariate and changing over time uh, that is going to be doing people's heads in for a very long time and is going to need mediation. Yes, so uh, I think the data science job will evolve. Will there still be data science teams? Uh, there'll probably be something like data science teams, but there'll also be something like data science in just about everything
0: yes i. I obviously could not agree more. I think that the, the a lot of the value of the data scientist comes in contextualizing the information for for people. And that I think that's contextualizing the research on how it can be applied to the particular situation that the organization is in, and then communicating that to, to people.
1: Well, the most key communication skill right now, and I don't think it's going to go away, is just facilitating the whole question-asking, question-answering process. mm mm-hmm and putting a a kind of a logic referee around it in my my science fiction organization of the future there's like a logic referee whose job it is to sort of walk in and say no time out that doesn't make any sense
2: that would be excellent or
1: or, uh, time or that's nice how do you know that how can we test that assertion yes so i i see good good senior data scientists good senior chief data officers do that and i see good CEOs appreciate that rather than try to shut it down. Yes. Because in Australia, at least, that's considered bad manners.
0: Exactly. Yes, to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it's considered bad manners to uh, to challenge people on the logical or empirical basis of what they're doing. It's bad manners to tell someone they're wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: See, I've, I've actually heard, I've heard of someone go to HR on someone for telling them that they're wrong.
0: <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's extremely detrimental for, for the organization to have a culture like that.
1: Well, it's detrimental for the organization, but uh, this is where the principal agent problem comes in. Is it detrimental mm-hmm. to anybody with the power to decide what the organization does? Yes.
0: Yes, exactly right. Interesting. So do you think that the, the people that are data literate and maybe the data scientists are the people that are going to be rising to through the ranks in different organizations and moving to, to the top um, in, the, in the short to medium term? Or?
1: Um, I think the moment there's a serious economic crisis, mm-hmm. we, we're going to start seeing that, yes. Because the world is complex, the world is fast. When, when the existing sort of social, social networks social hierarchies are insufficient to sustain people and people need to actually develop real value and make make good decisions the ones that are making good good empirical decisions are the ones that are going to be successful yes so darwinian evolution means that yes question is when
0: correct and then what are what are the, the components of of that future leader i think obviously data literacy is a a big one um But I think that there's also a debate around what should be done versus what can be done and uh, that's something different to to data literacy.
1: Well I do expect that we will come to the point and we're nowhere near it yet Mm -hmm. in Australia where the chief intelligence officer, chief analytics officer, call them what you will, is the most likely next in line for CEO yeah, as happens in governments and militaries, you know the head right. the head of intelligence is a candidate for uh, head of state. Look at Russia. Uh, actually, yeah. I'm not sure if Putin was actually head of the KGB. I don't think he was, but uh, or FSB. But uh, he was a, he was a highly placed intelligence officer, and that set him up very well to be a head of state. And that happens a lot. Interesting. Um, you know, who understands the inner workings of the organisation like a machine? Who understands all of its all of its threats and all of its opportunities. The intelligence people. Well, that's what that's what analytics is. It's intelligence.
0: That's right. Um, that's right. And and that's what should be possibly more of the focus because I think that so far, at least most of the. Oh, like actually, tell me what you think. But do you think that the, most of the value from analytics to date has either? Do you think has come from strategic? analytics or operational analytics so far
1: um i'm seeing a lot of operational yes I'm yes seeing almost exclusively operational
0: yes yeah and i same same here and i think that there we probably need to move to doing more strategic analytics to be able to move in in that direction would, would you say
1: well, well operational analytics requires a far less data literate management. Okay. As long as they're data literate enough to appreciate a final KPI uh-huh. going up. Yeah. And data literate enough to understand things like, you know, out of, out of sample testing or, you know, uh, or, or a control group. Well, and, and also having, having sufficiently honest incentives to not, Shoot it down because it's successful. Yes. But yeah, you don't need to have an intimate relationship with operational analytics. As an as a senior manager, operational analytics is a thing you own rather than a thing that you do. Mm-hmm. Whereas strategic analytics is something that a, a, a senior manager is intimately involved with every day if they're using it properly. Correct. It's it's the it, it assumes that that strategic manager's number one job is making decisions. Dangerous assumption. Yes. And it assumes that they want to make empirical decisions—dangerous assumption again—and it assumes that they're clever enough to make use of data, uh, data analytically supported empirical decision making. So uh, that—that's a tiny minority.
0: <laughs> that's right. Um, that's really interesting. And whether you know, as you said, economic conditions in different parts of the world could bring that to um, would increase the number of people in that minority quicker than in other places
1: well the other thing is where it's being done it's probably being done very well but they don't brag about it this is intelligence you you, you don't brag about your your competitive value add the intelligence functions of governments are their most secretive like mm-hmm. right? it's, it's synonymous with top secret right
0: yeah yeah and so do you think that as um as data science evolves and and matures people are going to be
1: more like that well, I think people already like that. It's just that there's a, there's a selection bias. The stuff you see is the visible stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who will go and present at a conference are presenting at a conference because their organization doesn't think the stuff is sufficiently strategically sensitive to say nothing about it. You don't hear hedge funds talking about their trading <laughs> strategies. And I'm not hearing much about intelligence agencies, analytics either, though I suspect they do quite a bit.
0: Yes. And quite interesting things. That's, yeah, really, really interesting. And um, before you mentioned the uh, something that I think about in terms of a generalist versus a specialist. Oh, the citizen data scientist. Well, you, yeah, you mentioned uh, about, specifically you said, uh, engineers that are now moving up the, the value chain mm-hmm. to be able to do... Um, To be able to do more work and and provide more value. Where do you think the the line is for generalists and and specialists and where should people be thinking about going with their career?
1: I think the first thing I'd say about career is if you if you if you're taking a career in this field, Mm -hmm. you're taking a big risk. Okay. It's a risk with big upside, but it's a risk. Mm -hmm. I have had no idea where my career is gonna be from, you know, one decade or even year to, the, well, five-year period to the next. Um, so, yeah, the world is a rapidly changing place and this is an inherently kind of rapidly changing role. Now, Yes, you know, but
0: but the skills are...
1: Oh, I don't think, look, I'm betting on it. I don't think it's yes. going to become irrelevant, but where it's going to sit, how it's going to, uh, how it's going to develop, which skills are the most important. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so sort of, like, I actually think that Learning Hadoop is not so important, but a lot of people, five years ago, Hadoop was synonymous with data science as far as recruiters were concerned. That's right. You know, data scientists must learn, must know Hadoop was a (laughs) a typical job ad. I know. Um, I I didn't think it was important then. I don't think it's important now. I was
0: the same. I, yeah, exactly the same. I never really, I I looked into it enough to to have a, a general understanding of it and appreciation for it, but
1: I didn't. So my first, my, my so just preface my answer by saying I actually don't know, but um, I think if I think back to my computer science degree, yes. So I did computer science and I did maths. So I did double honors, uh, uh, combined honors, and I look at everything I learned in, in computer science with with tiny exceptions. Like I look at the amount of time I spent learning certain things, with some tiny exceptions, which was the more abstract stuff like algorithms, you know, and relational databases, the theory, not so much the language. Yes. That stuff stayed. Probably 90% of everything I've learned in computer science woefully obsolete. Yes. Everything I learned in maths is as relevant today as it was then. Right. I think learning the permanent stuff is important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And learning the philosoph- and the philosophical stuff, the sort of stuff the sort of stuff that we've focused on in this discussion, I find is something most data scientists don't seem to want to think about at all, yeah. but I think this is the most important stuff. Um, you know, what is truth, what role does data science serve, um, and then what is uncertainty, mm-hmm. what is structure, what is a decision, Yes. Um, what is a prediction, what is a visualization. These are the most important things to understand if you've got those basics then you can you can sort of fill in that box with whatever methods or tools correct. become relevant at a given point in time if you start focusing on on specific tools specific technologies that's not that's not timeless and that's not strategic correct correct it's a very short-term view it's a very short-term view and it's also a very junior view that's yes. that's you know, the, I've, I've, I can program in Python and I've built my own uh, neural net in Keras. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's not going to put you in line for CEO. Correct. But it also, but the other thing it might not do is it might not put you in good stead when, in, I don't know, maybe in 10 years' time, quantum computing does become a thing. And I think that uh, one thing that might happen then is that we have a completely different tool set. Definitely. We start solving completely different set of problems. Um, We do it with a completely different set of tools. We use completely different languages. Um, In fact, oh, another reason I think people should study their maths is quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Because what Boolean language is to regular computing, um, abstract linear algebra and tensor algebra is to quantum computing. But that's a whole different story. Right, because you've been,
0: um, you've been Studying and and following quantum computing. I'm teaching.
1: Or? Well, we just we just taught our first prescient course on quantum computing this week. Actually, amazing. That was, uh, that, was, was that Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, but what I'd what I'd like to see is people studying statistics mm-hmm. and people thinking more philosophically. I'd say go and read just about everything Robin Hanson wrote. Uh huh. You know, go and go and certainly listen to Robin. A very recent podcast that I would highly recommend yes. is Sam Harris's interview of Robin Hanson from yes. a few weeks ago. I'll
0: put that in the show and if, notes. And
1: if, and if, as a data scientist, you're saying, well, what's the relevance of this to me? You need a good mentor to explain it to you. Yes. Because you're clearly missing some key aspects of the philosophical part of your your job. I think a lot of people call themselves data scientists, but they're actually... Computer scientists, or not even computer scientists, but rather IT people who aren't even computer scientists, mm-hmm. who've learned how to program in Python and learn how to run Keras, Yes. Uh, being an IT person who knows how to run Python and, 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 and run Keras does not make you a data scientist. Yeah. In and my book.
0: Definitely. So do you see the data scientist as, um, obviously, the person who's, who's supporting decisions, but do you, do you see them as somebody, as people who are searching for the truth?
1: I think there are people whose job it is to search for the truth and add value in terms of the truth. Mm-hmm. Turning truth to value is probably you know, the buzz phrase here.
0: Well, I think it's spot on because it, it, that highlights that it's more than the technical side, that you do need to be able to, to influence, to communicate with people, to, to be able to change people's minds and help them understand understanding that it's it's a two-way street as you as you were saying before
1: well i think the magic skill you need the superpower you need as a data scientist is to be able to extract the relatively simple from the relatively complicated Mm. so and that's like you know pulling a model out of a data set pulling an insight out of a data set but also pulling the real needs out of a conversation yes pulling the real decision-makers out of a room full of people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pulling the, the real pros and cons of a job out of an interview. Yes. I think that the ability to extract the most important stuff from situations, formally and informally, with electronic data or not with electronic data, mm-hmm. is the thing that's going to make you a successful data scientist. Ah, oh,
0: could not agree more. Could not agree more. That's so important. And then that's how 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 can we foster that or teach that in the community, how can people, how can data scientists learn that?
1: Well, step one is to want that, mm-hmm. like to agree that this is a desirable thing. And I think I have, a, I have an uphill battle to even convince most people calling themselves data scientists or aspiring to be data scientists that this is like, you know, they might hear, wow. the truth is most will hear this podcast and yeah. they might say, oh, it went on for a bit too long and I didn't understand half of what they were saying or, yeah, well, that's all very interesting, but it's not very relevant to my job. Yes. Um, I, at the end of the day, I think it will only be a minority of people who are going to agree with this. A small minority.
0: At the moment? Like right now? Yeah. Or
1: um, the at the moment, well. At the moment. Yeah. Um, so, but, but my point is, the first step is you've got to realize, like, it's like, you know, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous thing. The first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. Yes. Most people don't think they have a problem. Most managers definitely don't think they have a problem. And yes. most people in crappy data science roles don't think they have a problem. Yes. Um, so the first thing is to reach the ones who are who, who can see the problem. Who can see the problem? They want to do better, and I think being mentored by someone who's hopefully close to them in terms of a starting point, so mm-hmm. who can say to them, "You know what? Ten years ago, I was just like you." That's the best mentor to have.
0: Wow! Yes, that makes so much sense. Um, yes, I do agree that that people need to to realize that. That they, need, that they need this. The examples that you gave uh, just bring it to life so much for me, like being able to, to see what people actually mean when they make certain requests or, or communicate in certain ways and picking the decision makers from, from a room, those are highly valuable skills for, for a data scientist. And do you think that people see those as more generalist skills? Uh, soft skills what why why do you think it's it's not something in the radar
1: look most people are not attracted to data science yeah they're attracted to a data science salary or they're attracted to data science prestige also yeah also a lot of people who say they want to be data scientists aren't attracted to being a data scientist they're attracted to being a data science stakeholder now this yes. is this is something that has irked me mm. i've come across a number of very young people who've clearly you know they're really enthusiastic and they really want to talk to me they want to spend time with me they want me to mentor them and stuff but it becomes very clear that they don't want to do the work but okay. they but they want to be known for data science they're already you know writing blogs and they're already you know, they're already wow. wanting to present, and you know, they, they're trying to build a profile, and they're clearly, to, you know, they're clearly moving into the cheerleader class, data science section. Yes, I don't like that at no, all. No, that's I terrible. I don't like that at all. Um, but there's there's a fair bit of that going on. So some people don't even want to be data scientists; they just want to be data science cheerleaders.
0: Yeah.
1: Some people want to have the moniker data scientist. Some people are. Uh, rather, uh, well, I see a lot of people in the IT space not very happy with their IT jobs, and in their view of the universe, data science is another IT job. And it's like, well, I'm going to learn Python, and that's going to make me a data scientist, and can I have a data science job, please? One of the most interesting questions I was once asked by an IT person was, look, linear modeling, non-linear modeling, I get it all. These were his his words. He says, I get it all, I get it all. But... You get a data set. What do you do with it? Now, oh. to me, that was emblematic of that hunter-gatherer versus farmer yes. play issue. So here's someone who's never played in their lives. Jobs are always jobs. You know, you've got something to do. You've got a goal. You reach that goal. Boom, you move on. Tick. You know, Gantt charts, uh, post-it pads, whatever. It's like I, I, I had. I I couldn't find the language to to say... It's imperative that you understand that I don't know at all what I would do, especially because I know nothing about what data set you're talking about. Every data set is different. Every purpose is different. Every environment is different. I would play with it. I would talk to people. I would, you know, it's like I gave him what he saw as a complete and utter non-answer. I could see the frustration build. And this this was the big cultural divide. But there are a lot of IT people who want... To become data scientists and they get jobs as data scientists because yeah. here's the other thing a lot of employers think that data scientists are just a weird i.t person who Correct. can you know do this data-ish thing so <laughs> yeah so in terms of in, in in terms of helping people grow i say they well i think with these i.t folks there is hope but they need the, they need to get across the divide of what the heck they're getting into Um, with with the the would-be cheerleaders or I want data scientists in my job description, I don't think they want to do the work, really.
0: I agree. I agree. It's people that want to be around data but not dive into the data.
1: Well, I think getting mentored properly and particularly that first interview... I mean yes. that, that The questions you ask in the interview are the most key thing of all, but you need to have sufficient mental material to actually understand the answers and process the answers. Correct.
0: Yeah. And being able to pick the underlying message of what sometimes might not be said explicitly, Yeah, is the, answer, the actual answers to your questions.
1: Well, but but the very fact that things are being answered obliquely or ambiguously is an answer in its own right. Exactly. You actually don't want to. I, I wouldn't want to be in the workplace where you have to rely on extreme soft skills and, you know, yeah. reading between the lines. Useful skill to have terrible skill to have to rely on. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah. especially, yeah, especially in, in your inner inner team. That's yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um. So so you and what sorry what i was going to ask is what is the role of the of the manager and do you see the manager as being a mentor as well
1: well i think if you're lucky yes mm-hmm. i think your your team was extremely lucky but thank you look the thing is yeah i mean you fall into a different bucket right you're in the data scientist bucket you just happen to be a very, very senior data scientist. That's a great manager to have. Mm. So in this conversation, the word manager means people outside of our culture. Yes. Okay, so you're in the culture. You're, <laughs> you're the nice manager to have. With you, um, I think you're, you're, you're emblematic of another, uh, I think I've already mentioned this, of a patholo- pathology that I see people stumble into, which is they had a great boss, but then the boss leaves. Mm. What happens to the team then? I hope your team is going to be fine. Yes, me too.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and so, if people pair the learning the technical side, having uh, challenges uh, around the technical side, and then pair that with good mentorship that helps them on on what's typically seen as the soft skills, but as we're saying, crucially important, um, then a do do people not? want to do that because they think that it might dilute the, the technical skills and
1: then... Well, the good people do that. Yes, The good people I are agree. already doing that. I'm just merely suggesting that I'm a, I observe that this is the way towards success. Yes. Something else we should talk about that's related is churn in the industry. Yes. You see, um, a lot of data scientists are leaving their jobs and it's just, it's just a well-known trope that there's a lot of churn. Um, what's very interesting is why the churn is happening and perceptions of why the churn is happening.
0: And by that churn, you mean essentially jumping from company to company?
1: Well, initially, yes. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. no. Um, I think what I see is that the best ones stop jumping from company to company. They go freelance. Yes. They start their own startups. But they sure as heck don't want to be beholden to these pathologies. Um, But... Yeah, I I think that getting good mentoring, getting having a good sort of peer group, and also setting up your own challenges, doing your own stuff. have One of the most important things in this field is passion. Yes. If you don't love it, and most people hate it, doing mathematics is masochism, doing IT is masochism, most people can't do it. So if, yeah. if you're not one of those weird people who can do it, who can stick it out, at the same time having enough ADHD to keep their eyes open and look around. So it's a weird mix of discipline, extreme, insane, masochistic discipline, and complete sort of childlike hunter-gatherer, wide-eyed wonder and distractibility. Mm -hmm. Um, You need, and on the technical side, I don't think the technical is just IT. There's a whole lot of statistics, but I think there's a whole lot of philosophy and a bit of psychology as well. I think people are missing the philosophy bit. Yes. And then, you know, things like strategy, things like, well, this sort of feeds in from the philosophy, being an effective human being, being effective in organisations, achieving outcomes. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff there that, you know, some people just have innately, but, you know, it's worth learning. Exactly. Um, and those are the things that are going to help people progress into the future and,
0: and become leaders um, that are beyond the
1: realm of data science and with with the men with the mentorship uh it's interesting how there's this whole bucket of things called soft skills and i always wonder what's a soft skill and what's not because the moment you think about something clearly it's apparently no longer a soft skill because it's tangible (laughs) i don't know Uh but i think the mentor's main job and this is a soft skills thing is to identify the unknown unknowns say here's something you haven't thought about Yes. Here's something you haven't thought about at all, or here is a way of looking at the situation that hasn't occurred to you. So, um, yeah, I think uncovering, uncovering the unknown unknowns is a mentor's job. Oddly enough, that's a data scientist's job as well at the moment with regard to management.
0: Correct. That's, yeah. So, you so we were
1: saying, should the manager be the mentor for the data scientist? I find often the data scientist should be the mentor for the manager.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah, certainly the, 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 <laughs> manager's, uh, the manager's data literacy mentor.
0: Correct. Correct. It is it's so true. It's so true and, and so necessary in organizations right now. And what do you think about the the starting point for for most organizations with regards to data science and, and
1: analytics? I don't think it should be data science or analytics. Uh-huh. I think it should be do we have decisions that we need to make? Yes. Do we Ah and oh before the decision, do what is where are our feedback loops? The starting point is feedback loops. Do we care about? Do we do we want feedback? Do we care about feedback? What's preventing our feedback? What? What? Where's our feedback culture? What you want is a culture of people who are happy to be transparent. Yes. Happy to be assessed. Happy, happy to assess, um, and don't, don't do nasty political things to mess up the feedback loops. Correct. The measurement of important things. Once that's in place, and that's. I guess that's what BI is for. That's what BI is meant to do. Mm -hmm. Once that's in place, you then start talking about a decision culture. You start talking about identifying the people whose job it is to make decisions and make sure they're rewarded for the good ones and punished for the bad ones. Um, And decisions aren't made by a committee where people can arbitrarily (laughs) claim credit or shift blame and so forth. So you, you 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 want a nice objective decision culture and you want people who want to make better decisions. In, and those decisions are assessed by feedback. Well, then I, I would say data science just naturally emerges. Yes. So you get, yeah, get feedback, get decisions right. Data science is just, just natural. Whereas if you just impose data science out of the blue onto an existing politically uh, maladapted culture, it's not going to flourish.
0: That's right. Yes, and the uh, the company is essentially setting up themselves for, for success by having a culture that's that's transparent and that seeks feedback and has that intellectual honesty.
1: That's right. Data science makes no sense unless you have that, that, that that ground to begin with.
0: That's right. Oh, that is so true. Something that's more pervasive in the, in the organization, and then, so if if an organization starts with that, I'm acknowledging that it'll be. Easier for uh, for organizations that are starting from scratch, essentially. Then, what what do you see as um, some of the next the next steps?
1: What 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 do you mean? What are we going to what, what are we going to see uh, socially? Um, what are we? Well, like I said, I actually I'm I'm sort of in a slightly uh, perverse way. I'm sitting around and I'm waiting for an economic collapse. Mm-hmm. Because it's I don't think that data science has experienced a point in history where it's needed. I think data science has emerged in a period of affluence and it's certainly needed in the niches. You know, it's like if you've started a Google, you've started a hedge fund. Uh, yeah, data science is is the is the, is the is the the lifeblood of your business. If you you know if you're doing some sort of online retail, it, it it's the difference between success and failure. That's nice, but for the large part, for large corporates, it's not. They have not been in a, in a situation of existential threat for the most part. Yeah. You, need, you need to be in a situation where making no decision is not an option and making a bad decision is, is not an option. You either make consistently good decisions or you're gone and some players will not survive. When you're in that situation, well, then you have a real incentive to make good decisions. And economically, we're not there. Definitely
0: not. Yeah. And definitely not in Australia.
1: But when it happens, it's going to be a very interesting situation because I think the first thing that will happen is that uh, 90% of the people called data scientists or some some huge number, some huge proportion, are all going to get fired Yes. because no one knows what they do. Mm. They, they're, a, they're a discretionary expense. There's a whole lot of... Exper- a whole lot of these cheerleaders are going to get fired as well. A whole lot of... A whole lot of clearly non-value adding roles yes. are going to get fired, yes. but so will a whole bunch of value adding roles because the people making the decisions will, for the large part, not have any idea, and it won't be enough if there's a deep enough in a deep enough crisis. If a, if a deep enough crisis happens, yes, you give yourself some breathing room by you know getting rid of those expenses, but you've suddenly you know uh, you've uh, crippled the organization as well, mm-hmm. and you're not out of the woods. And only then will we start seeing some organizations making surprisingly good decisions, and we're gonna find out why. And I think good data scientists, good decision-supporting data scientists are gonna matter, and everybody else is gonna need to do something else.
0: Correct. And do you think that managers would look to data scientists to get the organization out of the hole?
1: I think the the clever ones will. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you're also gonna see some data scientists slash managers. Well, extremely data literate managers. Yes, that's the other thing. You're going to see, you're going to see an empirical literacy, a decision literacy, a feedback literacy emerge, um, and you're going to see a lot of what we call data science skills transfer to general literacy.
0: That's that's what I really want to see. I really want to see uh, data literate managers, and I want to see, ideally, data scientists becoming managers across across the organisation and leading organisations. Um, I think that, I'd lo- that's something that I would love to see in the future, and I think we would all be
1: much better for it i'd love i think it will happen the question is how soon mm-hmm. I, I think it 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 will it will certainly happen um, arguably google's already that i mean if you're going to call the uh the, the founders of google data scientists i would yes. yes
0: that's right that's right it's um the the way of the future is definitely cutting through that's really good um i wanted to ask you about some I know, maybe I was gonna say maybe some rapid fire questions, but I think they might need some some further um, explanation. The first ones around differentiating um, prediction, uh, what if analysis, and and causality. Where do uh, you see each
1: of the three? Okay, Pre- prediction, what if analysis, and causality. Well, um, all right. Uh, prediction is the like. Predictive modeling, if you're building a retention model, it's inherently correlational. So so there's the old adage, correlation does not imply causation. Uh, A, it's true. B, it's not super useful. And C, generally speaking, where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, correlation has been our our best indicator that maybe causality is at play. And sometimes we're wrong. But, you know, it goes the other way. If there ain't no correlation, probably ain't no causality. (laughs) You know, yeah it does go so that, that's, that's the important point so correlation is a is a necessary but not sufficient indicator of causality and usually worth paying attention to for most things we do not need to worry about for a lot of things we don't need to worry about causality to do our jobs so to you know try to predict stocks and you know try to predict sports games uh, if i'm a small player i don't need to worry about causality because I'm only, I'm only interested in how the past gives me an indication of the future, and if the past gives me an indication of the future, I can cash in. Same goes for customer behavior, you know, retention, campaigns, and so forth in in certain contexts. Now, if however, if however, my in the context of financial markets, if I'm a big player, then every trade I do has an impact on the market. Mm-hmm. And then there's a causal impact to consider. I need to think about what's what me trading this way versus me that trading this way gonna do. So it's not just which way is the market gonna move, I'm suddenly a player in the market. So that's causality. In the context of customer analytics, um, this is when we start talking about next best action. Mm-hmm. So with next best action, it's now no longer just what what is this customer likely to do um, given you know, we, 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 there's only one action we're going to take. We're just going to mail out to everyone, like propensity, or there's only one, one we're, only, we're, we're interested in an unconditional situation where here's all our customers, which ones are going to churn. Yes. So there's no real differentiation of action that we're interested in. We're just looking purely correlationally. But what if we're going to treat different customers differently? Mm-hmm. What if we're considering different interventions for retention, or we're considering different offers for a campaign acquisition, or more generally, we're considering different offers or different communications for value? Well, that's causal impact. That's something that's something that we may do in the future, and it has an impact. And getting that impact wrong can be very, very bad. Mm-hmm. And not having having a well structured experiment to, uh, to to randomize out our um, our set of possible actions can can cause all sorts of problems. And then or doing something like marketing attribution, where we can't quite control, it, control everything experimentally, yes. and doing a bit of non-experimental causality, which there are econometric methods for, and there are AI methods for, and there are epidemiological methods for. Those three areas have done some amazing things to develop, some methods to replace, uh, 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 to give us the ability to do causal inference, even when we don't have the ability to do randomized experiments. Right. Um, well, with marketing attribution, there is an action that we are taking mm-hmm. um, in terms of a campaign. And the question is, did we make money because of this action? Or was money made, but <laughs> due to completely irrelevant factors or, or sheer randomness? We'd like to know because we'd like to know what the, what the best thing to do in the future is. Yes. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yes,
0: definitely. Definitely. And why, why do you think that people Miss the difference between those those two sides between prediction and and um, causality.
1: I don't think they do. They miss the difference. I don't what think people people uh, inquire enough mm-hmm. deeply enough to even even worry about which one's which. I mean, for the most part. Uh, I can talk about the ways they miss it. So managers miss it just by saying this is too this is technical and therefore not my problem. Yeah. So I should talk about managers who see themselves as too important to actually be interested in the value yes. that the thing they're in charge of gives. So there's that I don't care at all, I'm too important. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the sort of the IT background data scientist view of well, <clears throat> I'm just following orders. I'm following a process. I don't yes. need to understand what this is doing. That's all mumbo jumbo. The main thing is I've got the code working. Correct. Um, so those, those, I think those are the two main failure modes of understanding in general. Yes. And uh, you know, inquiring into whether you're looking at a, you know, if you're looking at something that's correlational or, you know, unconditional prediction or mm-hmm. some sort of conditional prediction. It's not actually about causality because you can have that as well. Um, yeah. Uh, well. They think that's our problem, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's their problem. Sometimes it has, it has consequences for them.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Like the attribution, marketing attribution stuff definitely has consequences. Uh, one, one simple way in which it has consequences is, well, if you want us to do an expert action system, we need to be running experiments. We need to be sending mm-hmm. nonsense to people. <laughs> that's right. But if we don't send nonsense to people, we're not going to be able to build good models in the future. Explaining that very simple thing. To people in power, seems to be incredibly difficult, extremely difficult,
0: and yeah, and having the the courage to to take that path, even though the benefits are are huge, is is something that people really struggle with. Even when you talk about, you know, um, I think it was Capital One, like, um, is it um, financial company that did it in the US? I think in the nineties or mm. something. Or
1: that's right. They were doing massive experimental uh, uh, analytics yeah way back when and benefiting enormously from it
0: enormously enormously and that was you know 20 years ago and um, yeah people today still
1: struggle to well to commit well the thing is the real struggle is not we, wor- we 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 focus on the fact that they don't understand I'd focus on their incentives like why should yes. they what what the, the issue is they don't really care it's like your job is to be the analytics person doing clever things that I can show off in PowerPoint slides. Yes. Now leave me alone. You know, they don't actually care about you delivering any measurable value. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, they actually don't even want you to succeed. Yes. They actually actively don't want you to succeed. There's all sorts of incentive issues.
0: Completely. Completely agree. And and then between, between projection and causality, where does the... Um, the what-if scenario, or like the what-if analysis sit, which is like A/B testing and multivariate versions of
1: well, that's that's causality, isn't it? Completely. Well, uh, well, if it's A/B testing relative to something you're doing, mm-hmm. so the only yes, A, A, it's A/B testing, or or what? It's what-if testing. What if we do this? What if we do that? There is what-if. Okay, there is what-if analysis on what if our competitors do this? What if our competitors do that? Mm-hmm. I'd call that conditional forecasting. Uh-huh. So uh, in many senses, they're very similar. Uh, yes. But in one key difference, they in one key sense, they're different. We've, you, like, If you're doing pricing for a uh, for fast moving consumer goods, you're actually doing what if analysis across a whole lot of prices. Yeah. Some of those prices are yours. And some of those prices are competitive prices. Mm-hmm. For your prices, your objective is to find the, the optimal pricing mix. But that optimal pricing mix is con, is conditional on a competitor pricing mix which you have no control over and you're going to have to guess.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly.
1: And by the way, I'm pretty sure they don't do... Well, a lot of FMCG types, they do some amazing predictive modeling in this regard and it is, it is causal inference but they're not doing experiments. Okay which is very interesting.
0: Yes. Do you think because of the, um, the bricks and mortar uh, part of the industry, do you think it's easier to do in well, an online fashion?
1: Well, put it this way, the, um, the I've, I've, I've actually been involved in some of this. The, uh, the actual data analysis is outsourced. Wow. The, actual the actual predictive modeling tends to be outsourced. Now, uh, outsourcing predictive modeling is a lot easier than outsourcing predictive modeling and you know, experimental design, whereas we say the experiments are deliberately detrimental. Yes, <laughs> that's right.
0: Oh, wow. No, I, I think it definitely needs to be brought in and, and built internally. Um, that's really interesting. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned the, the deployment issue, and yes. How in some situations it is a, a real problem. Uh, when when is that? Well, first, what what do you see as the deployment
1: issue, and when is it actually an issue? Well, it does take a lot of time and a lot of grief to get a model into production, mm-hmm. in a lot of in a lot of places, and it does take a lot of manual fiddling. It may take you know translation of a model that's deployed in one language into another um you know and it, but on the other hand i mean and there are some legitimate arguments for uh, some legitimate arguments for you know getting sort of a large overarching system to automate some of this and make make the process sort of transferable so you have the one system that in which the data scientists build their models and the deployment happens and so forth but it's also a wonderful excuse for IT to claim ownership of the data science function. Yes. It's a wonderful excuse to spend tens of millions of dollars or more on things people don't need and aren't ready for. Um, It's it's a wonderful political football and excuse for spending money on nothing. And data science seems to be very much a battleground for spending money on nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I find it objectionable that so little so, so little of the work done in data science actually goes towards developing value in large corporations. Yes. And so little of the money spent on data science goes towards data scientists. Mm. So every time, you know, hundreds of millions are spent on software that frankly people weren't ready for or didn't need. Yes. And often with not very much consultation with the data scientists. Correct. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying deployment is a false issue, but I'm saying deployment is used as an issue where sometimes it's not the main issue at all. Completely agree for, yeah, people use it to to get, to try and build huge platforms that
0: are going to solve everyone's problems and in the end don't solve. But
1: I I think a related and important point to make is that I believe that the further data science is away from IT in terms of the management structure and the way it's managed Yes, the more likely it is to be successful.
0: I definitely agree. I definitely agree with, especially with the way that it's managed. Data science, as we've spoken, it's it's such a completely different um, beast. But how about in terms of um, the access to the data, access to source systems, and one that's one side, and then the the data engineering, data preparation side. Where where do you think that those?
1: Well, okay, so. Sit? So we've discussed, with regard to data engineering, we've already discussed one data engineering failure mode, and that's the failure mode where there ain't no data engineers. So where you're, da- where you're very expensive and actually rookie, like straight out of uni data scientists are being told to build reports, yeah. and then on the one hand doing stuff they find extremely boring, and on the other hand being chastised for not knowing how to do very basic ETL and so forth, mm-hmm. which frankly they, they wouldn't. Um, and by by people who don't understand the difference between what a data scientist does and ETL, yes, um, that's not a good situation. Um, ideally, you want you you want data engineers helping them. In fact, I think you need two, two data engineers for every data scientist. Yes,
0: that's that's, what, that's the
1: point. first point. That's a Good. Ratio. Now the second point. So one failure mode is there ain't no engineers at all, and the answer is have some engineers. And what I then see is the following. Okay, we have engineers. We have this silo under this this. Uh, this management structure where the data scientists live and we have this completely different silo which is inevitably under IT mm-hmm. even though the data scientists may not be yes. maybe they heard my podcast and put the data scientists not in yeah not but, in not there but they put the data right. engineers in a completely different silo um and they go well we've got data engineers now They're, everything's fine except and these all these data engineers want to do is you know under the guidance of architects build systems to basically entrap the data scientists yes. and uh, be you know, be autonomous in building things because that's what engineers like to do. They like to build things just like data scientists like to play. Uncontrolled data scientists play. Uncontrolled engineers build. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> the engineers should be there helping the data scientists play. The engineers should be there automating the things that need automating, but only those things and under the guidance of the data scientists and to help the data scientists. They should all be in one silo. They should not be in the separate silos. Yeah. And what I usually see is yeah, you have the no engineers at all problem, and you have the engineers are in a different silo and actively working to undermine the data scientist problem. Yes, You don't want either of those pathologies. You want them all under the same command structure working together, and uh, you, want, you need engineers to do the ETL stuff. You need engineers to do the deployment stuff. Mm-hmm. You need both to be done under the guidance of the data scientist, because the engineers are there to say, look yes, I know you're a playful data scientist, but there are certain things that are repeatable. We're going to make them repeatable.
0: Yes. And a data
1: scientist's job is to say, I know you're there to make everything repeatable, but there are certain unrepeatable aspects around this. I need you to work flexibly. Correct. And it's a constant negotiation. Then you need engineers in the middle to do kind of like the the DevOps and the piecemeal automation of the actual lab work. Mm -hmm. So it's neither input nor output side. It's sort of the DevOps in the middle. But they're there... To work with and let's face it, support the data scientists throughout
0: the yeah the chain because, throughout the chain yes because at the beginning I was thinking whether it was a a half and half where you have half around the hunter gathering data scientist and then the and then it gets the work gets promoted to the farming data engineer. Oh.
1: And, um it does, but I th- still think. It's under the oversight of data science, yes, for quite a while, and it may be completely different engineers to do the ETL and, and do the deployment. Uh-huh. I mean, there is a closed loop you might want to implement as well, yes. But yeah, I think that the the one team aspect, uh, you know, without getting into the conversation of all well, who's more senior, uh, except to say, guess who's going to be paid more? Um, hmm. I'd say they all need to be reporting to the same person. They need to be one team.
0: Yes. Be one team. I
1: yes. I I agree with that. That's I think true. it's imperative that they be one team. When they're not one team, there are political reasons for that, but not not sensible ones. Yes,
0: exactly. And then how about that delineation that of a team would be, which would be data engineers and data scientists and IT in the sense of um, access to the data, access to the systems, and the ability to.
1: Well, if there's any issue. About with with access to the systems to the data, then you don't have an effective data science team. Uh, and do, are there inevitably issues? Well, yes, there are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did have a conversation with a, with the architects once where they said, "Look, we're there to help you. We're there to give you whatever you want." And my answer is, "Give me the data. Give me open source tools, and get the hell out of my way." Exactly. You know, I don't need your help to to you do any of this stuff, I need you out of the way. Yes. Is what I said to them.
0: Oh, spot on, spot on. And I've had lots of cases where that hasn't been the case. And, you know, even situations where we have people at a at a C-level, uh, C-level executives saying, these data scientists are not to get access to the data mm. for them to do their work. Yeah. Well, incentives. Yes, madness, madness. Um, another another uh, open thread that, that we left was uh, data visualization. Oh, yeah. So you spoke about a couple of points in the in the dark
1: arc. Well, something Hadley Wickham, uh, the great Hadley Wickham, the man who's single-handedly transformed R, Says, said, and he said this in the context of the first package he wrote to transform R, which was ggplot2, which was a visualization package. Um, I... I Hopefully, doing justice to his words, it's strongly paraphrasing, but there are two disciplines to visualization. There is the discipline of you as a data scientist communicating to the data, the data communicating its findings to you, or you extracting those findings, you know, looking for insights. Basically, using data visualization as an analysis tool, yes, as an alternative to other kinds of statistical analysis or machine learning. Aha. Uh-huh. And then there is a completely different discipline of you then having a specific insight in mind and visually communicating it to a third party, a capital M manager, yes. as they're defined in the context of this conversation. Yes. And the important thing is that they're completely different disciplines. Now, here's the thing. Whenever whenever a an unexpected distinction comes along, you usually find that everybody tends to identify everything with one of the two parts of the distinction. Guess which one's the unknown unknown? Because what I find is when I teach my R course, I bring up what's called a pair plot, which is a very, very complex piece of visualization. And hands go up and people start saying, inevitably, how do I explain this to management? Mm -hmm. (laughs) At which point I say, are you telling me that the purpose of visualization is to explain things to management. Yes. The purpose of all visualization tools. Yes. No. (laughs) No. Yes, there is a discipline of explaining things to management and that is where we do really simple stuff. Mm -hmm. The really cool visualization tools are therefore insights. You never show them to managers because they'll never understand what they're doing. So things like pair plots are just... They're there for you, the analyst. They're not there for your audience. You can, if you find something in a pair plot, well, you take that one little plot out or maybe you communicate it in a PowerPoint slide or something. You know, um, the visual and, and, and visual communication skills, a lot of the stuff you read about you know, in presentation skills, just, okay, that all applies to communicating insights, but somehow you need to find the insight in the first place. And what got me was that here were people studying data science or at least studying R, in the case of that class, to whom it never occurred that part of their job might be to find insights. Correct. Now, where do insights come from? Well, I'm a process worker. <laughs> you know, I'm just freight forward stuff. Yeah. Uh, in, in, interesting. It, it's it's a view of the world that I'm still trying to understand because it's so far from my own. Yes. Um, so those are the two disciplines. But you see, they they disciplines. They're serious. They're about the transfer of information from a data set to an analyst and From an analyst to an audience. What I discovered is that a lot of audiences don't really care. Um, Or a lot of audiences are there not for you to inform. Like your your objective, for whatever reason given by the managers, your job is to make these people be impressed. And impressing people is not the same as informing them so it turns out that a whole lot of stuff is there a whole lot of visualization is done to impress rather than inform and a whole lot of tricks apply to visualization i call that a dark art you see i don't i wouldn't i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to glorify it by calling it a discipline it's a dark art yes but another dark art which is i think also very common is a sort of form of flattery you see there's a difference in informing someone and leaving them feeling informed There's a difference between actually getting a message across and someone walking out thinking, I'm really smart now, I know things. Um, And I think that is perhaps the main purpose. Mm. The main purpose of um, corporate data visualization is to leave people feeling like they've been informed. Which is not the same as informing them. Yes. And secondarily, it's to leave them impressed. And thirdly, to leave them entertained, yeah. that's the other thing. Make it flashy. Make it. You know, there are certain tools that I, I think, are completely useless for insights and not very useful for communication. Like there are much more effective ways to communicate, but they, they, they have entertainment value or even just signaling value, just social signaling value. Like, why do pie plots, pie charts still exist? Asking oh. for a pie chart shows that you're an aristocrat. It's actually an inherently substandard way of communicating information yes. but important people use pie charts and yes if you're in the know you'll use a pie chart instead of a bar chart mm-hmm. very strange anyway very that, strange that that covers the visualization work
0: yes so much there and in your over your career what type of analytics have you done the most what what's kept coming up and time again has it been marketing and analytics or something Uh, different
1: oh in terms of the application domain, yes um mm, just it's so very um yeah marketing marketing is ubiquitous um but i keep stumbling into things like uh financial prediction and sports betting yes just my own my own personal interest in that stuff um i also keep stumbling into different kinds of uh, forecasting. In fact, it's it's interesting how many times I've stumbled into energy forecasting. Mm-hmm. Um, fast-moving consumer goods uh, pricing is is a recurrent one as well. Um, what else keeps recurring? I think non-recurrence is really the phenomenon. I keep doing different things. And some of the things we're doing now. What are we doing? We're we're doing stuff on road safety. We're doing stuff on medicinal cannabis. Yes. Uh, we're doing. St- we 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 we're also doing stuff on um, on credit scoring, so that's customer analytics. I'm trying to think if we're doing any marketing right now. Yeah, I'm doing some advisory and insurance claims and energy.
0: That's great. Credit energy
1: analytics. So yeah, actually no marketing at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, and what are you most excited that you're working on at the moment? You're most excited about.
1: Um, I have to say that sports betting is really the most, uh, sports betting and financial trading are the two most stimulating um, data analytics applications I can think of, sports betting especially. Um, especially yeah, yeah. When, I get, when I get the chance, the time, when the team has the leeway to, to, to work on it properly, it's just great. It's, it's just, uh, it's an infinitely creative, challenging, objective, what I call gladiatorial. Um, the main, you know, you do well, you win; you do badly, you lose real money, yes, your money. Um, I am also very interested in quantum computing mm-hmm. and <clears throat> quantum machine learning. I can't say I'm doing any analytics there because it's not ready for showtime. It's, there's no okay. no one doing analytics with machine with quantum computing as yet that I that I know of, yes. Um, <clears throat> but uh, um, I think the the prospects there are very interesting.
0: Why what? got you interested in, in quantum computing? What grabbed you about it?
1: Um, honestly, uh, I I just wanted to get on the ground floor of this. I, yes, I, I got on the ground floor of R. I could see that that was going to go places. Um, I could see that this was a domain that you just can't fake. You can't go, hey, I've done a one-year IT degree. I can program Python. I'm a data scientist. You yeah. can't do that with quantum computing. If you don't have sufficiently intuitive understanding of matrix algebra, you can't do quantum computing at all. Can't even fake it. So uh, I, uh, I saw this as a very interesting domain that was heavily invested in, and going places, and demanding a certain level of knowledge that, you know, I had a, I had a pure maths degree, suddenly exactly. that's relevant stuff, so. And, and it looks like it's gonna revolutionize machine learning as well. Yes. So for all of those reasons, I yeah, had to pay a lot of attention to quantum computing.
0: Good man. I think it's a very worthwhile investment of your time.
1: Well, the course went very well. Um, Sarah McLeod delivered that course. And she's, she's just done some amazing work for us.
0: That's great. In Melbourne. Yeah. 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 And when's the next
1: one? Um, I think we've got one coming up in Sydney in May. Perfect.
0: Perfect. That's really good. Um, and you mentioned that essentially. Well, quantum computing and, and statistics are, are things that you recommend that people get into and,
1: and study
0: up uh, I, I would sort of
1: with quantum computing I think there is a future there I think people can uh, take their time with that mm-hmm. that future is going to take its time coming with statistics is a must an absolute must
0: yeah and that goes back to the um, to something that was quite permanent in as but a skill
1: something permanent and also something fundamental yes Um, I think what what people don't understand is if you read if you learn statistics you have to learn thinking skills (laughs) you have to learn thinking rationally in a very methodical way yes it is yeah you you think you're going to learn a bunch of formulas you actually learn how to think
0: and do you recommend do you think statistics is something that people can learn on
1: their own I think it's one of the hardest things to learn on your own yeah so, you know, if you're going to learn a programming language, if your choice is between learning statistics on your own and learning a programming language on your own, learn the programming language on your own. That's easier. Yes. Um, some people can learn statistics on their own, and good luck to them um, if they can't. Uh, lots of people want to, seem to want to do a master's of data science. Mm-hmm. I keep saying do a master's in statistics. Well, I'll still say that.
0: Yes. Um, and how about the master's of statistics that have a particular uh, specialty, like... Um,
1: biology there's a biostatistics yes Mm -hmm. well i know some pretty clever biostatisticians um what do i think well ideally what i'd like them to do is statistics with a a fair bit of regression modeling and hopefully some actual machine learning in there as well Mm -hmm. um that would be useful yes um statistics with machine learning experimental design time series analysis uh multivariate exploratory statistics and visualization and and bayesian statistics and some causal impact type yeah. stuff that that would be a great degree yes. yes
0: that would be sounds like a new degree a bit of
1: econometrics well a of... i think a good econometrics degree seems to be about the best thing you can do really well for for data science in business yeah mm-hmm. yeah a good econometrics degree where people pay attention but yeah some of the some of the smartest uh, data scientists we know are econometricians that's right, yes, and there's a good reason for that
0: yes, very much so that's excellent and where uh, where can people find you where would you like them to
1: um okay know? the 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 first place is you can connect to me on LinkedIn um, the second place is the prescient website is where we keep all our courses we've just, just now just while we were talking. Yes. Uh, Uh, I got a message saying that our New Zealand courses are now up. That is so exciting. It is exciting. So I I have machine learning, data science, uh, quantum computing courses and Python courses all over Australia. Um, But now New Zealand in uh, Wellington and Auckland in July, August. Fantastic. And hopefully elsewhere. Um, Yes. Yeah. um, Also, I would suggest people have a look at... uh, so have a look at the Prescient website, and uh, if you want some help with this stuff, um, go to the Advantage Data website. That's my consulting vehicle. Yes. Um, also, if you're elsewhere in the world um, and you're looking for, uh, for a data science team, um, Alpha AlphaZeta is, uh, is the organization to pick, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm the chief data scientist of that.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, and I can really uh, vouch for the for the present courses so they're absolutely fantastic. I've I've done a few in the past, and I'm looking forward to doing more in the future. Well, um, I,
1: well I hope you come to two uh, this week. Definitely, I'm
0: there. I'm there. These are um, yeah, you can't you can't miss these ones. They're excellent, excellent courses, and I'll put um, I'll put links to to all of them to press in, um the Advantage Data and Alpha zeta on
1: the show notes uh, and also to your LinkedIn actually I'll do that thank you very much thank that, you Felipe, and, thank, and thank you for uh, this wonderful opportunity for well to record one of our many conversations
0: yes exactly no thank you thank you for all the time and it's been absolutely fantastic thanks so much Eugene. thank you that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.